At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world, from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode is with Fei-Fei Li, professor in the computer science department at Stanford University and co-director of Stanford's Human-Centered AI Institute. She's also the author of a new book out today, November 7th, entitled The World's I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI. We'll link the book in the show notes. She is joined by Vijay Pandey of Bio and Health. Fei-Fei's book is part memoir, part look at the recent history of AI. I got an early read of the book and I highly recommend it. In the interview, she and Vijay talked about how she and her parents immigrated to the U.S. from China and the culture shock she experienced in her new classes. It was terrifying. My parents didn't speak English. They dropped everything and, and decided to leave. And so it was kind of a rebirth because instead of doing my physics and <laughs> loving, you know, reading special relativity in Chinese, I suddenly have to go back to almost ABC, not not quite ABC, but I was in all ESL classes. I remember ESL sure. English and, and they did put me in a regular math and everything I understand was only loving numbers and symbols and I did it all perfectly and everything has words I didn't know how to answer at all. So <laughs> They also talked about Fei-Fei's mentor, how she worked through college and how she eventually ended up at Stanford building ImageNet. And in addition to her academic work, Fei-Fei is involved in shaping the future of AI policy. Policy is not just guardrails. Policy is good incentive structure. America has mm. always won when we have good public investment is especially public sector research, think tank, uh, academia. So we have been leading, you know, the public sector to encourage the U.S. government to put in much more resources in our universities uh, in terms of compute, GPUs and Mm -hmm. CPUs, as well as data. You know this, but I still want to say this. Not a single university today in America can train a chat GPT model. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. Fei-Fei, thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World. Yeah, well, Vijay, it's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, so you've written this really beautiful book that outlines a lot of your life story and history and then connects to where we are now and perhaps most importantly talks about uh, where the world could be going. And and maybe the, the question at our hands is, which world do we build and, and how do we build it? 
Uh, so yes, well, thanks for uh, talking about my upcoming book called uh, "The Worlds I See." I am an immigrant. I came to this country when I was 15 year old, and、uh, landed in Persepolis, New Jersey. But before that, I lived in a city in China called Chengdu. I was. You know, not surprisingly, a, a STEM kid. I loved、uh, science and nature. Partially, I think, very inspired by my own father, who is a very curious person about nature. Yeah. So, what was STEM like in China at that time? Our teachers were rigorous, so we did have more or less good foundational training in terms of math. But what really, I think, was a Light bulb that one time for me was I think it was around seventh grade that physics was introduced as a subject in、uh, middle school and that just kind of changed me like to this day that physics is still you know first love I mean to the point I majored in physics at Princeton and I had good teachers and I just basically fell in love with that subject. You know, I'm I'm in the same camp with you there. Do you think it's just a coincidence, or what, what's the? Do you think there's a connection between、uh, the love of physics and 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 creating AI? I'll tell you the connection for me, and I'm curious what was the connection for you. The connection for me is physics training or love for physics. To me, is about. Audacious questions is you dare to ask what's the smallest particle of the universe or what is the end of time and space. You go to the most extreme of what nature's mystery is, and that audacity to me is what I love about physics. And it was very natural for me that the audacity of can you make a thinking machine. What is intelligence? The tool set is computational and and mathematical, and that 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 goes without saying. But that's the connection for me. What is it for you? Yeah, I think you hit on、uh, two, and I'd add one more. So very much the big audacious goals, and like as a kid learning about special relativity, you know, or or, or general relativity.、Yep. It's just amazing that you can just with math、uh, and a very few simple postulates get to crazy ideas like、e、equals mc squared、uh, without actually all that much math. Is kind of amazing. What was it like shifting from China to to come to the U.S. and, and immigration? That must have been、uh, for many. It's typically a, a bit of a culture shock. A bit. <laughs> that, that's an <laughs> understatement. But yes, fifteen、yeah. year old. Think about think about a fifteen year old teenager. You you can hardly get them to brush their teeth, and let alone <laughs> uproot them, right? So yeah, it was more than a shock. I. Really, I landed in Persepolis, New Jersey, high school, and I barely speak English. Like I can barely、What? recognize the sign of the restrooms to know which yeah, one to go to. Terrifying. It was, it was terrifying. My parents didn't speak English. They、um, dropped everything and and decided to leave. And so it was kind of a rebirth because instead of. Doing my physics and <laughs> loving, you know, reading special relativity in Chinese, I suddenly have to go back to almost ABC. Not not quite ABC, but I was in all ESL classes. I remember ESL、sure. English, and and they did put me in a regular math, and everything I understand was only involving numbers and symbols, and I did it. All perfectly, and everything has words. I didn't know how to answer at all. So, well, it's also fascinating because I can only、um, imagine or assume that 
you must have thought a lot about learning because you had to learn everything again. So much of AI is, especially modern AI, is not expert systems. It's learning how to learn. And you must, you were forced to learn how to learn. That's a really interesting observation, Vijay. I guess I've done this twice now. Once is relearning everything as a teenager and then becoming a mother and observing little humans <laughs> learning. And you're right. And learning is organic. Learning is not, I mean, there is some rule base. You teach little kids to, to follow certain rules, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah. learning is organic and learning is messy. Learning is big data. Learning is reinforcement to, you know, try and mm -hmm. error. Um, yes, you're right. And also another part in the book that comes out uh, very clearly, you're talking about your math teacher, uh, Mr. Sabella. Could you tell us a little bit about him and, and uh, his uh, sort of impact on your life? Yeah, I, I can only use the word profound um, because, mm. you know, imagine you are just this teenager barely speaking English dropped in the middle of a public high school and uh, parents are, were all trying to survive. Most of my um, off-school hours were in kitchens of Chinese restaurants. And then I really was lonely, was somewhat scared and nervous and, and really pretty much clueless. And then I stumble upon this teacher who um, kind of took me under his wing. Mr. Sabella is not your, your typical thinking about how warm and radiant that kind of teacher. He is a tough love teacher. And uh, somehow we had so much chemistry that I just started frequented his uh, office and asking him questions about just even how to navigate this world. And what is mm. really uh, memorable for me is my senior year, I got placed out of all the math curriculum that the, the school district could offer. And it, it's not anything fancy, VJ. It was just the, they don't do multivariate calculus. So Mr. Sabella just created a one-person class for me for his lunch break hours, and I was doing multivariate calculus with him. No, as most people know, like um, most places don't offer multivariate <laughs> calculus at that time, right? So that was already uh, you doing deep into university math uh, in high school, which itself was honestly, Vijay, I had no idea. Yeah. I, I honestly, yeah. this is such a new country. I don't. My cohort is, you know, Chinese restaurant workers, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my parents don't know any of this. So if Mr. Sabella, if he didn't go that extra miles for me, I wouldn't even have known. He didn't go that extra no. mile. He he went that wow. extra mile, right? What would you say the role of your parents were in terms of uh, guiding you towards, you know, going into science and, and computer science and all these things? On one hand, very little. On the other hand, profound, actually. Very little in the sense of my dad is quasi-STEM. He had a little bit of engineering education, but he came from that generation, really cultural revolution generation that... Um, just didn't really have much schooling. And my mom, for yeah. very sad reasons, was not even allowed to go to school. So they didn't have much of that. So they don't, they're also very hands off. They never check my homework or anything. And we landed in America. They can barely survive themselves. They were in cashier jobs, you know, long hours. My mom has terrible health. But all that means I was just on my own. In the meantime, with all that backdrop of life's challenges, they were relentlessly 
convicted for making sure I go for my passion. Like they never, you you know how this typical stereotype. They never came home and say, "Fei you need to be a doctor." Yeah. <laughs> or, or yeah. you know, yeah. or lawyer, whatever that that yeah. is. <laughs> they, you know, I majored in physics. I literally remembered that friends and neighbors talked to my mom and said, "You have one girl, and she's a girl. Why are you allowing her to major in the most useless major <laughs> for a girl?" And my mom had a simple. Seemingly non-profound, but very profound answer, which is what、well, she likes it.、Mm. What was your time like at 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 Princeton? And I got my understanding is that you know while you did do physics, computation, and and neuroscience did come into your thinking. Yeah. Okay. So I was living in a tale of two towns. So Monday to Friday, I was living a Princeton student life in the dorm. But starting Friday evening to weekend, I was running my dry cleaner shop in in Princeton,、oh, wow. New Jersey. So what happened is that、um, as soon as I got into Princeton, the jobs were very unstable for my parents. They are my mom's health was deteriorating, and I feel like we need to do something. So we borrowed money, including from my math teacher, Mr. Sabella, and bought a tiny little. Dry cleaner shop, and in Silicon Valley spirit, I had my startup, and I was the、yes. founding CEO. Yes, <laughs> I hired my two employees, and I started running that dry cleaner. So, on one hand, it was Princeton was the mecca. I was just in heaven, right? Like literally, like VJ first day of physics one hundred five. The、yeah. professor said. Palmer Hall, Einstein、yes. had sat here, and and I was just totally in heaven. But I think just the experience you've been through, I think, has probably also built such an entrepreneurial spirit. I, and I think it, you must have taken everything much more seriously because you weren't playing around, you weren't messing around, right? It was survival. I cannot afford it. It was survival, and I remembered. Um, I had to pass heavy machinery license <laughs> to run a dry cleaner shop. I had to do customer services. I ran that shop for seven years, and three of them were remote from Pasadena Caltech. So a lot of customer service was remote. It was good. I, I, it builds character. And then, then you're a professor at Princeton, and then you you get to Stanford also pretty rapidly from there, right? Yeah. So I actually、um, from Caltech, I went to Urbana Champaign for one year. I was very grateful they gave me a job, and、uh, but then Princeton called me, and it's my alma mater. My parents at that time was I was already taking care of them, so they were with me, but they wanted to go back to New Jersey, so I took them back to Princeton. And I was gonna live there happy, happily ever after, but your prestige colleagues at Stanford <laughs> called me, especially、yeah. Daphne Kohler, Sebastian Thrun, Andrew, and and、um, and Bill Daly, and it took me two years of agony. It, it's hard to resist Stanford and Silicon Valley、yes. when AI was taking off. Vijay, my as you know, my field is. Visual intelligence, you know, making AI be visually intelligent and seeing things. What is seeing? Seeing is not just getting sensing light and colors and shapes. Seeing is really making sense out of things you see, and eventually, because of that, you can do things in the world. And a huge part of making sense in 
uh, human visual intelligence is understanding the semantic world. You actually know you're looking at a uh, a desk, a, a puppy, a, a phone, or your own phone, and 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 so on. So that's called object recognition, and.、Uh, It's actually a really hard problem. Evolution took, you know, hundreds of millions of years to crack this problem, and humans are by far the most capable visual animal when it comes to object recognition. So, I was a faculty at Princeton in two thousand seven, and at that time, I had a lot of conviction that this is my north star problem to work on because,、uh, as physics has taught us. That you have to learn to identify important North Star problem to go after as a scientist, and to me that's a North、yes. Star problem. But if I look at my field at that time, a, a, a very small number of people are working on this problem, but they're working with very small scale data. We're still stuck in the Bayesian wor-、uh, uh, modeling world that、um, mm. we are tweaking parameters. You know, it's really hard to get it to work. And、I guess the insight come from me and my students is that mathematically we know AI is about generalization. The 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 flip side of generalization is overfitting. There are two ingredients when it comes to overfitting. One is your model is not good enough; it's too small. The other one is your data is not good enough. So the、yes. whole field was working on. Modeling per se, I was working on modeling. We were writing pages of equations, but I, I had, I guess, an insight that we're missing data. That's driving algorithms. That's driving AI. And nature has taught us that there is a ton of data out there. Well, conveniently, that was year two thousand seven. What has happened is internet has happened. It's still early、mm-hmm. internet, but. It, it was already big, so there is data. If you look, you want to get it. So I decided with my students, let's just go absolutely crazy. Our field was working with a data set of thousands of images. Let's go tens of millions if we can. So ImageNet eventually was a North Star visual intelligence data set. That has 15 million images organized of the whole world's nouns that are visual, which turn out to be around 22,000 of them, and it became the dataset that drives uh, uh, visual intelligence. How, how do you gather that? Because that's no small feat. Yeah, well, it starts with the delusional optimism, which, in <laughs> hindsight, if I wasn't delusional, I wouldn't have started it. Well, but was it delusional because it worked, right? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there was some delusional part because I wanted to go big, and this is where advisors can be more delusional than graduate students. You know, the graduate <laughs> students say, "Okay, I downloaded a few million." I'm like, "That's not enough." By the time we downloaded the entire internet based on WordNet vocabularies, we had a billion images, right? So. What do we do? But did they have labels? I forget. Like, so here's the-, the thing: we use labels and、uh, some trick of label expansion to download, but they're very noisy, right? Especially early days of internet. But even today, you type in the word German Shepherd, and what you're gonna get is not necessarily.、Uh, It, it could be a German human being that、uh, minds sheep. <laughs> exactly,、right? it could be a T-shirt, it could be a book, it could be a cartoon, whatever. Right? It could be.、Yeah. So they were guided by labels, but you have to do 
serious curation and and mm. cleaning and organization, and we have to do it by humans. And I thought the first time I thought, well, how about hiring undergrads, right? Um, you know, right. Princeton undergrads are somewhat <laughs> smart, but yes, <laughs> turned out they're too smart to want to work on this problem. And also, back of envelope computation says it's going to be take you know I don't know nineteen years to finish, and my my PhD student Jia Den, who uh, who uh, was my first author for ImageNet, was like, "I'm not going to take a PhD <laughs> for 19 years." So yes. I thought about another way is to use machines to clean because we're thinking, "Oh, can we get machines to to clean?" But that's a circular reasoning because machines are not good enough. If we use machines to clean, we'll never create that real data set. Right. to drive the new machine learning algorithms. So eventually, again, serendipitously, we discover Amazon Mechanical Turk as an online market uh, yeah. that was just launched like less than a year. And we actually at some point was probably the biggest uh, academic users. And that online market gave us tens of thousands of online workers across more than 100 uh, countries. For three years. And, and I think it really was that vision of scale that was the difference, yes. right? I mean, that's, I think, the big aha moment, not just for images, but I think for all of us, is that if you could get to enough scale, you could actually, uh, AI could yes. work. No. ImageNet was such a foundational pillar for AI. But um, even that was like, what, 20, 2012. 2010? 2012. 2012, yeah. So now t 10 years ago. What do you think about uh, sort of how AI has emerged in the last decade? Like, are you surprised it's going this fast? Are you surprised it took so long? I gotta say, VJ, roughly speaking, I'm impressed by the speed. Uh, what about you? I mean, you're you're in the field too. I'm kind of shocked, and I think part of it is that I think having like Google Brain and Meta and these collaborations also between uh, these companies and academics. It's just there's so many smart people working on it with so many resources, uh, so much compute, so much data that just wasn't there before. It was different than if it was purely an academic pursuit. Yeah. And that you go to archive, it feels like every week there's like an interesting archive paper that maybe in previous times would have been every quarter or every year or something Yeah, like no, I, I cannot catch up, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so by and large, I'm very impressed. And you're right, what has converged is that because we're seeing glimpse of hope, you know, from the early days, that resources start to come in, especially the large tech companies, then, you know, Moore's Law continue to carry us, right? Like, it's a genuine inflection point but I'm also, you know, concerned. I'm concerned not from this typical rhetoric of a human extinction. I think that's a very far concern. I, I think it's just powerful tools can be used good and bad in powerful ways. Yeah. So I agree with you both on that the extinction is, is overblown. And yeah, like any human tool, it could be nuclear energy, it could be a nuclear bomb. A car can be transportation. You could kill somebody with a car. Yeah. So how do you see us moving forward responsibly? First of all, I guess that coming out of my dry cleaner shop, I am a pragmatist. Being responsible also involves being pragmatic. The world has so many problems that AI can help solving. And one 
part of the pragmatism is to embrace good tools, right? Especially in the area you work in, you know, bio and I work in healthcare. I cannot imagine we don't embrace these tools. But in the meantime, recognize responsibility and recognize collective responsibility. We all have a responsibility, uh, whether it's big tech, individual researchers, policymakers, civil society, school teachers, um, uh, artists. And that is important so that we move from pointing fingers or hyperbolic rhetoric to let's get together and actually do something that's positive. So you're thinking something like collectively come up with guidelines that we think allow innovation in a responsible way. Yeah, I think there's guidelines, there's norms, there is a guardrail in terms of regulation, there is also good policy to incentivize a good good work. I think it's really multidimensional. There's also partnership and dialogues. I'm heartened to see that tech and policy world are starting to talk. And it's uh, oh, yeah. a few years ago, they don't talk to each other. To The flight is too long, but now... Uh, <laughs> well, it's funny because I grew up in a suburb of Washington, D.C., oh, yeah, and these places that. are just so far apart, I guess, metaphorically and literally uh, at times. Uh, and I think bringing us together is a very important first step. You mentioned regulation. What do you think regulation would look like? This is a problem, actually, VJ. we think a lot about because, as you know, I am the founding co-director of Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI in addition to tech, we actually work a lot in social sciences, humanities, and policy. So I think I want to say two things. One thing is that policy is not just guardrails. Policy is good incentive structure. America has mm -hmm. always won when we have good public investment is especially public sector research, think tank, uh, academia. So we have been leading you know, the public sector to encourage the U.S. government to put in much more resources in our universities uh, in terms of compute, GPUs and mm -hmm. CPUs, as well as data. You know this, but I still want to say this. Not a single university today in America can train a chat GPT model not even probably GPT-3. Uh, and all universities combined, I doubt we can train a chat GPT model. And to be clear, you're talking somewhat about just the dollars, yeah. right? The, the Just the cloud cost. But also to some degree, it's very challenging to hire programmers, professional programmers into universities. And right. so it's just hard to have the staffing, right? Right. We, we don't have the machines. We don't have enough talents. And our talents are, are exiting and going to industry because of this. So I think there should be a lot of public sector investment as part of policy. Now, that's just one part of the, the incentivization. But there is also regular regulation, right? That's important. And... Uh, healthcare and medicine is actually a perfect example. I really think we should be careful how we think about regulation. There is applications that's rubber meets the road, and we have regulatory framework. It's uh, let's not reinvent the wheels. Exactly. Um, you know, yeah. especially in healthcare and life sciences, there's yes. a pretty very robust regulatory framework. Exactly. Yeah. We need to update it. We need to 
inform, educate, and communicate with our、uh, regulators so that they know how this new thing might might change some of the、uh, the details. But but we need to. Th- this is the pragmatic way of you know delivering the right kind of regulation to businesses and consumers. Yeah. Of course, there's also a catastrophic layer where it's newer to our world. For example, disinformation, especially AI mixed with social media. I think there we need. Let's start with well-informed policymakers and、uh, deep dialogue of multi-stakeholders to figure this out. How do you think things look like in in five or ten years? If if let's give the optimistic version, if we can build this sort of consensus. To, to be thoughtful on how we go forward, where do you think we get to? I've been dreaming about this, and I could be a little too、uh, crazy. Vijay, one day I want to want us the entire society to move into what I would call dignity economy rather than labor economy,、mm. meaning that productivity would be increased so much by、uh, a technology that. Each of us go to work because we feel this gives us agency and dignity and 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 reward, rather than purely this kind of day to day grind that many people still do, and it's still not great wages. So I hope that the technology would boost productivity, but also、uh, help us to create an economy that preserves human dignity or even enhances human dignity. That is the. The optimist、uh, version. <laughs> We do have to work hard, though. I don't want to be totally、um, delusional about this because I think if we don't work hard, there are a lot of potential pitfalls that are dire to sometimes to communities that are underserved and、uh, under you know represented will be first hit. Yes. So to end with one last question, what do you do for your own health? Great question. Let me see. One is happiness,、mm. like. I, well, what do you、grateful. mean by that? Tell, tell me, yeah, tell 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 us more. Well, I'm grateful for the family I have. We we enjoy each other. Yeah, <laughs>、uh, we we love we love our family life. We we love we have one amazing cook、um, <laughs> in our family, which is not me. So credit to my husband, <laughs> and、uh, we eat good food. And I think that's so important. With that, maybe that's a good place to end it.、Uh, Feifei, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Vijay. Always a joy to talk to you. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z, and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying Bioeats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com/disclosures. Listener.